Welcome to Nanny Ogg's Book Club, a Discworld podcast. Join us as we read through all 41 of the fantastical and outrageous Discworld novels. I'm Tessa. And I'm Nigel. This is episode 21, Jingo. Jingo is the 21st Discworld novel and the fourth watch novel published in 1997. As far as I can tell, there are no adaptations of this novel. If any of our listeners know of any adaptations, please let me know. I think that for the most part, people have stayed away from this one because of the subject matter, which I'm very excited to talk about. But there's not a whole lot about this one. I I feel like when you look at reviews of the watch books, this is one that gets passed over a lot. When it came out, there was, of, of course, reviews of it and so on, but this isn't on a lot of people's lists, so I'm very interested to talk to you about it, Nigel, and to hear what our listeners have to say about it. We're in your house right now, listeners, listening to you. Please let us know, or tweet at us, really, which is the, the easiest way to get our attention, I feel like. I'm eating your drywall. <laughs> But a really quick summary. When a mysterious island appears in the sea between Ankh-Morpork and Clatch, both countries quickly try to claim it for themselves. Old tensions are rising, the kind that lead to violence. When an attempt is made on the life of a visiting Clatchian prince, it is up to the Watch to investigate and keep the peace. Can Vime stop the ultimate big crime of all, war? Nigel, what were your first thoughts about this novel? My first thought is a question. Does your edition of the book have a dedication? This is a great question. I feel like I should know this. No, it does not. Okay, so... No, so this paperback edition, the Corgi Transworld imprint of Jingo, uh, you can't see it, but it, it's the one with like the Josh, uh, Josh Kirby thing on it. That doesn't have either but originally i was going to read the digital version i have on my phone it's an epub and then i was like in a bookstore and they had jingo so i was like well i'll buy it so but that has a dedication and it's dedicated to uh, it's dedicated to all the fighters for peace or i'll get the exact wording which i think that's an interesting thing because yeah like on the one hand it's kind of like you know like uh, you know like let's clap for our heroes and like you know, like American Patriot way where it's like, we love you for serving your country and whatever. And now we won't respect or fund you or take care of you in any way once you get back. Right. But at the same time, it's also like really interesting for the themes of the book because like, you know, it's yeah, to all the fighters for peace. What's the difference between a freedom fighter and a martyr? A freedom fighter and a terrorist. That's what I'm thinking of. Yeah, I got it confused with the... um the Panic of the Disco song, the only difference between martyrdom <laughs> and suicide is press coverage. Exactly, yeah. And, like, what does it mean to fight for peace? I feel like that is a really big theme of the book. I wonder why that dedication got dropped from the quirky imprint, and then mine is the the Victor Golan's hardback editions that have come out recently. That's a really good question. Why Why did that get dropped? If listeners know, please let us know. Some of the the some of the corgi imprints have had ones like the moving picture one, the guards guards one, because we talked about them on the show. But like other ones just don't have them, or like the digital copies I have don't have one. And now it's making me think like, do all of them have? Do all the Discord books have an inscription or dedication? But it just doesn't show up in certain editions. That's very strange. 
Yeah, I'll have to look into that. Maybe that'll be my assignment for the next episode. Like, do they all have dedications? What happened to the dedications in some of them? Because, yeah, like we've often talked about the dedications on this podcast when they exist. I didn't realize there were editions that had dedications that weren't in my editions. So that is really interesting. But yeah, what else did you think about this novel, like, uh, as a whole? I, uh, so, like, I was like, oh, this is, like, the most obvious satire of the Falklands War. Really? I don't know anything about the Falklands War, so you're gonna have to, like, educate me on this. I mean, I'm not exactly up on the Falklands War. Like, it's not a special subject of mine. But it was a thing in, oh, I'll get the dates for you. I don't want to, like, have the wrong dates. But I think it, it it was during Margaret Thatcher's tenure as Prime Minister anyway. So yet again, the Discord books have come back to Margaret Thatcher. But again, this is a book in the 90s. Uh, like, it was being written by a British author in the 90s. So I feel like the specter of Margaret Thatcher looms large over, like, every piece of culture in Britain at the time. She just, like, imprinted herself way, way too much. So the Falkland Islands War was from April 2nd, 1982 to June 14th, 1982. And so, like, the Falkland Islands are near Argentina, and it was a war that happened for these islands, this tiny little island in between Argentina and England, or between them, who were fighting for it. And so I was like, well, this is quite obviously what it is. Like, a riff on... Because they're talking... Like, they're talking about... It's this tiny island in the sea that's just appeared. It's not, it's of really no consequence. So why is there a war being fought over it? Which I think is kind of the sentiment now. It's like, why did Britain feel it needed to go to war over the Falklands and also Gibraltar? Uh, like there's the, the place on Clatch called Jebra. And I was like, well, is this just Gibraltar? Yeah, I think that that's a really good point because I was thinking of it. I mean, the title kind of gives it away. Like jingo, jingoism is it's something that has come to mean like aggressive militaristic nationalism. And even though there are other countries that participate in jingoism, like I mean, the U.S. definitely has that going on. For an example, it is kind of specifically associated with British Empire, right? Like these attitudes of conquering other nations and being like nationalistic about it and so on. And so I was looking it up, actually, Mm. it comes from a popular song dating from the Turco-Russian War of 1877. Odd uh, origin for the word Jingo, but that's where it's from. And I feel like by naming this book Jingo, this book is basically making a comment on that type of nationalism on like British empire and the way that Britain has historically interacted with other nations, especially because Clatch is clearly a stand in for Middle Eastern nations. So like you think about things like Afghanistan and India and Pakistan, you know, like these, these areas that, that Britain has had such a partition of India. Right. The Britain has had like this like traumatic influence on the the development of these nations. So that seems to be like the theme, but I had no idea that there were maybe specific instances that were being satirized here. I feel like that like just having it be a random island in the middle that both sides want as someone who grew up in Ireland, you know, and like that's kind of that's kind of my first association and maybe it could be something else or whatever uh i you know i didn't see any other 
instances in the past, like, you know, like references to the partition of India or the division of Palestine into Israel and Palestine. But it's also like strangely the most prescient Discworld book, I think, right now. Because I was like, oh yeah, it's a satire about the Falklands War, kind of. And then getting into the British, like British Empire's jingoistic nature. But now like the fighting over sovereign nations, you know, like in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine feels extremely precious. And like a lot of what they have to say still rings true, despite the fact that this book was written in the 90s. Right. I mean, this is even before like the, you know, September 11th and, you know, the the invasion Mm. of Afghanistan and Iraq by the Americans, you know, like it's really interesting how much of this book when I was rereading it, I mean, parts of it are a little dated, but for the most part, especially in its ruminations on war and peace and war as like a big crime, which I thought was one of the most interesting parts of this novel that stuff, like, it lines right up with what happened in the early aughts, even though it came out in 97, as someone who's American and who lived through all of that. Yeah, and especially because what it comes back to it is, like, like Vimes in the tent and uh, Clatch at the end and the, suppo- like the purported negotiations on Lesp. It, like, it comes back to this notion that the world is watching. And now, like, since, like, I ended up writing um, an essay for college on it, like, the concept of American exceptionalism and and the concept of the American nightmare, uh, like, and how they're linked. But, like, America's, America now has kind of taken the place of Britain in that it needs to involve itself in every single war. But, like, it's, all of America's problems are on such a global scale since September 11th. And the, like, massively disproportional attack that they, you know, sent against the Middle East, you know, and just killed an unfathomable amount of innocence. Having the world watch feels like it should hold someone accountable. And we've kind of gotten into this on, like, other watch books where it's like, this is what a police force should be. And now, and, and they're able to do things that modern police force can't, like, be good policemen and actively represent communities and stuff. And now in this, like the concept of the world watching actually means something. Whereas I don't think it does now because like the United Nations exists, but does it really like it? It's not doing anything to benefit the people dying in Ukraine or the people in the people in Afghanistan, the people in Palestine, they're still dying. And, like, the whole world is watching, but nothing is being done. Whereas in this one, everyone holds themselves accountable to the fact that they're being watched and they're being scrutinized and they can't do it in, like, the back rooms of political power. Right. And I like what you pointed out, because that was a big thing that struck me about this book, is that this book, especially Vimes' relationship with war, and that comes right up against his ideals of what the watch should be right he he is very i love the scene between him and rust where lord rust is like well you're a military man and he's like no i'm not like i am not military the the watch is not a military organization 
which is so different from the way that the police conceive of themselves in the U.S. because the police in the U.S. are very militaristic um, and the way that they keep arming themselves like they're a military is like a, a huge topic of conversation here. Yeah, like the photos and videos of, like I said, the courtroom when they overturn Roe versus Wade of snipers on the roof and police would like captain america riot shields and stuff right like, and they have like tanks and grenades and like it's it's almost like they are waging a war on the u.s public but for vimes this i mean in this fantasy version of the watch the police right what they should be that's completely different he's like no i am not military the watch is not a military organization and that comes right up against the way he conceives of war because he says war is a crime it's one of the big crimes right and that was another thing that I liked about this book is this idea of small crimes and big crimes and the way that he says people just expect him to take care of the small crimes. But if you're really important, you get to commit the big crimes and you get to get away with it. Because that's what he comes up against at the end where he's like, well, we're going to arrest both armies. And he said, well, like, you can't really you can't really do that. You like his brain kind of rebels against the fact that he can actually prosecute people for the big crimes. And then. Where, it's a, where it says he has to um, arrest veterinary. And he's like, well, I can't do that. And they said, well, no. Like, if you've done this, you can't say, well, we're going to arrest people for doing big crimes and then say, oh, but not him. Like, I love Lord Veterinary as much as the next person, but I still think he should be subject to the, you know, the law. I love the scene at the very end, I guess we're going to begin at the end and work backwards in this book, but I love the scene at the very end where Vimes is uh, like puts both leaders of the army under arrest, right? Both Lord Rust and the prince. And, and he says to Carrot, or Carrot actually says, actually, I think we could. And the army too. I mean, I don't see why we can't. We could charge them with behavior likely to cause a breach of the peace. I mean, that's what warfare is. Like this idea that like war as a concept is criminal. And Vime starts listing a whole series of crimes that happen during war, right? Like conspiracy to cause an affray, going equipped to commit a crime, obstruction, threatening behavior, loitering with intent, loitering with intent, ha, huh? traveling for the purposes of committing a crime, malicious lingering, carrying concealed weapons. Like all of these things are crimes, right? But we sort of excuse them in the context of war because we're like, oh, that's just war. That's like a whole different thing. But Vimes is basically saying, no, it's not. It's the same thing. It's just on a bigger scale. The thing about all of the interactions between Lord Rust and and Vimes, and they're all really funny, and I, I want to get into them later on, but like the whole concept of the watch being stood down because they're trying to deal with like a diplomatic incident. Uh, and then that like because Vimes is now a lord, he can raise he's expected to raise a properly maintained militia in these times. And then Lord Ross saying, Well, you can't do that because it's not the way that like the officially sanctioned army does, because he knows that like Vimes's morals like are different to, I suppose, the, the jingoistic ones. And that's what he says then near the end where he's like, you know, even if veterinary gets back, they'll have him out because he embarrassed them on a national stage. The closest we get to a villain is Lord Rust, but also the Prince Cadram. Like both sides, their leaders are considered like the villains of this book. But I think the one we get the most interactions with is Lord Rust. Yeah, he's not the most like 
scary of antagonists. Into like Lord Tea Time from Hogfather is like the most just like fucked up, just absolutely terrifying antagonist we've had. And I suppose like I feel like Ipslor the Red as the villain behind Coin in Sorcery is also slightly terrifying for what he did to a child. Right. But like Lord Rust is terrifying because he has that like gre- like he hides behind the gregarious like populous politician thing where he's like 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 he's uh the Ronald Reagan Donald Trump archetype of a politician. You know, where he seems like he's he's appealing to the American value and we need to send these people I keep saying American now because like Ankh Pork is obviously, you know, it's it's Victorian London inspired and that kind of thing. But the problems translate more to American now when we're reading the books. Well, I was gonna ask, do you see any parallels between Lord Rust and like Margaret Thatcher? Since you brought up that up earlier? Yeah. I mean Yes, but also, like, no. Like, she f- like the policies feel Thatcher-esque, but there's a lot of similarities between Thatcher's policies and Reagan's policies, because they were, like, of the same time, and they had the same kind of, like, economic and, like, national m- m- mindset. So they kind of feel the same thing, like, but in terms of as a person... He feels more like Reagan than he does Thatcher. Like like the policies that they implement, yeah, Thatcher. But like personality wise, probably Reagan. And then of course there's like a healthy dose of like British aristocratic, like this is just how we've always done yeah. things, duty and honor and holding up your end type of discourse as well. Yeah, there was like a, a line early on when they first meet Lord Rust, around when he says Divines, oh you're a military man. Where he says, oh, he's the type of person who'd probably pronounce ours like hires. Yeah. <laughs> I always imagine this very pompous voice. Yeah, like constantly putting H's in front of words. Just because it's that, like intake of breath. It's a, like an, I think it's an aspirant. The way you pronounce like vowels and consonants, there's different types. Uh, and an aspirant is one that you like take a breath in on. And then you've got like glottal ones. I'm trying to remember, I learned this when I, like, had to learn Old English for college. But, yeah. He seems to appeal to that, like, because, like, Vimes' butler, you know, leaves, Willikins goes abroad because, like, that's what he feels he has to do. And it's this, like, it also feels evocative, like, there's a lot in this book, because I think it is a, a, like, Cold War era type meditation on the falcons war but then you've also got like bits of the first world war like saying oh it'll be over by christmas and the the football match but then it's also like it it reminds me are are you aware of the wilson wilfred owen poem dulce et decorum est no i'm not wilfred owen and siegfried sassoon are kind of like the two big british poets of the first world war and both of them were um openly critical of the war wilfred owen wrote a lot of poems that got really popular and then he died like pretty much at the end of the war uh, the poem's title dulce et decorum est is from the horace quote dulce et decorum est pro patria mori like it is sweet and honorable to die for the fatherland and so like it's 
the first the first bits of it are just describing like the awfulness of war. Uh, there's a really just gruesome description of someone dying in a gas attack. But then it says, yeah, if in some smothering dreams you too could pace behind the wagon that we flung him in and watch the white eyes writhing in his face, his hanging face, like a devil sick of sin. If you could hear at every jolt the blood come gargling from the froth-corrupted lungs, obscene as cancer, bitter as the cud of vile, incurable sores on innocent tongues, my friend, you would not tell with such high zest, to children ardent for some desperate glory, the old lie, dulce et decorum est, pro patria mori. Because I feel like Terry Pratchett would really... Uh... From this book, I should say, I don't really know what Terry Pratchett's personal views on war are outside of this book, but the way that he talks about war is often very much like this is a horrific thing. Like it's and in fact, Vines even says that, like, how do you even deal with people who just sit down and decide there's going to be a war like that's like completely antithetical to Vimes because he knows how awful war can be like he's talked to veterans he's friends with fred and nobby right who are both you know veterans of warfare in their own ways and so like even though he himself has never been in a war he knows like the effects that it has on the population he knows how horrible it is because he's heard all of these stories and for him it's like how can you be a sane person and sit down and just go oh yeah we should have more of that yeah so, yeah, I think he would really identify with the feelings in that poem, even though Vimes is not a particularly poetic person. <laughs> no, definitely not. But I think that's what makes Russ so terrifying, is that he's the kind of person that can just sit down and go, yeah, we should have more of that. And especially because, like, the way they set up 71-hour Ahmed, as like, and I suppose we'll get into, like, the like the way people are perceived like people of different cultures and nationalities and ethnicities are perceived in this book and how it's reflected but the way they set up 71 hour ahmed as like being just you know this evil despicable villain you know embodying the worst stereotypes the people of ankh morpork have about clatchians mm -hmm. then when they learn why he has the name 71 hour ahmed where where it's like he has the same sensibilities as Vimes, and they say, well, he's not a soldier, he's a copper too. And if Vimes had killed the prince, then 71-hour Ahmed would have killed Vimes because he committed a murder in front, like, openly in front of witnesses. That, like, even though this is war and people are standing down, it's still, like, the law is being broken. Right. And, like, you know, he killed someone within hospitality, which is, it's an old, that's an old, old thing. There's people in Dante's Inferno who are being punished for the crimes of, like, breaching hospitality by killing people. Right, and that's true in a lot of cultures. I mean, you can find examples of that back in, like, the Odyssey and the Iliad as well. Yeah, so, like, it feels like they're kind of upholding the other end of, like, culture, where it's like, yeah, we have these, these things, but they shouldn't be less get in the way of... Like, you shouldn't let these get in the way of people committing big crimes. You know, th this person who 71 hour Ahmed killed, you know, poisoned a water water uh, hole, a well even, and men, women, children, and camels all died. Yeah, and then the bit of the camels 
a bit of the end where he's like, oh, and they were really good camels too. It's kind of like, it feels like this joke to kind of belie the fact where you go like, aha, you know, like, oh, he's upset about the camels. And you go, wait a second, did he just say children died? And you're like, yeah. Mm. See, I don't, I don't think that, I think we're supposed to initially think like, oh, he's joking and he actually cares about the camels more. But if you actually look at how he says that sentence, he doesn't say how many camels there were, but he does remember how many people there were like down to the last one so i think that even though he does make this really dark like humorous joke about it he actually does care more about the people than the camels and that's why he's 71 Mm. hour ahmed yeah this whole book reminded me of a mountain goat song um and i don't remember whether i brought this song up before sicilian crest off of their album in league with dragons who knows anymore but the whole song is about how easy it is to like be tricked or fooled or like in like falsely inspired by the ideals of fascism mm-hmm. where everything is like everything is kind of bad. And so like it's always proclaimed as a, a hope like the chorus is like, you know, look to the West, look to the West, look to the man bearing the Sicilian crest. And then the whole thing is about like forming a militia. Which, like, you know, that's what they do in this book. Vimes does it. Obviously, the Second Amendment is, you know, like about maintain a regularly well-maintained militia. But then there's one description that, like, really, it's really kind of chilling when you think about, like, the Proud Boys and the January 6th riots and all these people, like, these cells who are willing to, like, storm the seat of government to make sure that Donald Trump stays in power where it's like we wait like stockpiled landmines ready to burst. Yeah, it's it's interesting because Vimes here is using the logic that Rust uses to form these militias against Rust. But there is also this sense that Vimes, I mean, he just sees it as a reforming of the watch. He doesn't see it as actually a military force. And in fact, when Carrot later tries to use it as a military force, he's like, no, we're not here to fight a war. Like, we're here to solve a crime. This book is interesting because, like, all of the books have kind of got all of the watch books and, and the Rinswin books to a certain extent. Because I don't think it, it really happens in the death books or the witches books as much. Or it's like, well, what is a good person? Like when you put them in certain situations like Rincewind, obviously I keep going back to, you know, he, he's like the good man. When other people won't step up, he feels like he has to. Right. And he's the only person who recognizes coin as a child that's been abused. But like Vimes and Carrot always have this dichotomy of like one influencing the other. And there's the, the bit in, in men at arms where they talk about like, well, an evil person will stand around a monologue before they kill you, whereas a good person will just kill you outright. And Carrot is a good person, so you don't ever want to end up on, like, in front of him with a sword. But, like, they put, they certainly, like, really, really test this book to, like, they test them in this book. Like, they keep bringing up the fact that Vimes' ancestor killed the last king of Ankh-Morpork, they keep bringing that up as evidence against him. And he just, like, it's around the same scene where where Rust tells him he's a military man. 
and he's like he's just done he's like oh yes and you'll say that i'm related to him and uh, yeah let's just get over with it yeah i love the scene where he's pointing the crossbow at prince candram and he's like candram is like you wouldn't dare kill a prince and he's like yeah maybe you should ask them who my ancestor is yeah that's all they say about him Yeah, it, it it comes up in a really interesting way too later because Vetinari makes Vimes a duke at the end of this against Vimes's protestations. And it's interesting how Vimes is like, I thought only a king could make a duke. And you just get this really perceptible look between Vetinari and Carrot. This like moment where it's like, oh yeah, he said he was reminded that the word commander is ducks, you know, and that's and that's duke. So there is this idea that, like, Carrot, although he doesn't want to rule Ankh-Morpork, he doesn't see kings as being necessary to this rule of Ankh-Morpork. He is willing to sort of, like, use that, use that talent or use that idea to, like, do what's right. I don't know. It's funny as well, because, like, 71 Hour Ahmed recognizes that Carrot is the king of Ankh-Morpork. Yes. He goes, and that's your king, yes? And he goes, and he's like, no, he's not. He's just, he's just the commander of the watch. Or he's the captain of the watch. And he goes, you're, you give orders to this man? Like, that's incredible. Yeah, and you get that from the, uh, the attacking Clachian force, too, where they're just like, this man can make water run uphill, and he has a commander? Because then you have, like, the difference between... Like when they when Ahmed sees Veterinary, he's like, "Well, that's your boss, right?" And then Vime says, "No, he just pays my he just pays my wages." And well, it's hard to tell the difference. There's a lot in this book about Vime's relationship with other people because you get a lot about Veterinary and Vime's because, and this is the first time I think it's come up. Vime's has acquired a new nickname, Veterinary's Terrier, which he. Yeah. Feels ambivalent about. It. He has strong feelings about it, but he's not sure which way those feelings go. What did you think about this concept of Vimes as Veterinary's Terrier? It brings up one uh, important question. V- uh, Veterinary already has a dog. Where is it? <laughs> where, where is Waffles? Where is Waffles? <laughs> because, like, there's a lot in this book about, like, people knowing how Vimes is going to react. And, like, Ahmed saying, well, he had to sabotage his own ship so that that Vimes could catch up. Like, the Vimes is a predictable entity, and he's ostensibly at the end of a leash that Veterinary holds, but it's a, a leash with a lot of slack paid out. Although Vimes does also say, like, at the end of the day, we're all somebody's dog. Having him be, like, attempting to be moral and be an upstanding citizen and help out people as a direct tool or a tool that's directly associated with veterinary and how he operates uh you know like with the thumb screws of power um colon says later on in the book like it, it's interesting i don't know i don't know i'm forgetting i'm forgetting something i was going to say something in this heat i feel like i feel like detritus my brain just stops working when it gets warm oh I like that because their whole their whole relationship in this book is veterinary, like throughout all of them, but especially in this one is like him winking at Vimes essentially, and like leaving stuff being like, "Yeah, you'll figure it. the man will figure it out eventually." Like the hint that he can organize his own militia is an empty envelope that's addressed to Sir Samuel Vimes, and he's like, "Well, why is there just a blank piece of paper in this? What message is this meant to send?" 
And I just, I really appreciate that, that, like, even if he is Veterinary's terrier, Veterinary doesn't expect him to blindly follow things. He has to, like, work it out himself. Like, he feels that Vimes needs to come to this on his own, like it's his own idea, even if Veterinary has, like, planned this out 12 moves ahead. Because Veterinary understands Vimes. Like, he understands what Vimes needs, probably better than Vimes does. I think that the scene at the end is really interesting when Vetinari makes him a duke and Vimes is like, no, you can't make me. And I, I love that he lists like, I have everything I want. There's nothing you can bribe me with. The dartboard is almost new. Like <laughs> the little reference to the dartboard there at the end. It's my favorite one. And then Vetinari says, yeah, it's a, gr- it's a good one. But then Vetinari basically says, well, we'll rehabilitate the image of Stoneface Vimes and we'll make a, a statue of him. And I... Th- First of all, I think that's interesting because that is something that Vimes cares about. This idea that people do see his ancestor in a way that he doesn't view as accurate. And I don't think it's personal pride. I don't think it's Vimes going like, well, you know, the way that people view my ancestor reflects on me. I think he just sees Stoneface Vimes as a hero, as someone who did the right thing. And it bothers him that people don't see it that way. Also, I just think it's interesting that, like, we're all just bought and sold, is what Vime says. And Venari is like, yeah, but I don't think you're needlessly spent. Mm. Like, this idea that, like, Venari does respect what happened. He does understand that people died. But the idea is, is that this was the only way it could have happened in order for this particular future to happen. And so he does value that without making light of it what i was going to say was like that like that's something that comes up an awful lot how he views what stoneface vimes did like the the definite like in this one he talks about like well you can't murder someone and then he says like in this book the technically it like because we're at war it'd be execution and then like in the last book he says that like, you can't murder something. You put down a wild animal. Like, there's a difference between murder, execution, and, like, putting something down. I'll see now if I can find it. It's the thing that made me think. It's right after one of the most, har- like, harrowing things in any book. Like, in any Discord book so far. Him hearing that, like, had he not made the choice to go after the boat, all of the watch would have died like one by one in quick succession they would have died if they hadn't gone and done this to prevent like ultimate unrest in Ankh-Morpork. pork that really that really fucked me up i'm going to be honest with you but the the quote then the sensation flowed into his veins like fresh warm blood it was the feeling that you got when the law ran out and you looked into a mocking face on the other side of it and you decided that you couldn't go on living if you did not step over the line and do one clean thing like that's the like I think that's the end point to like how far can a good man go during war? Where it's like, well, is what he did morally right? Yes, but like within like the laws run out. You gotta take the law into your own hands. Right. And this has come up before. This came up in Feet of Clay when he was thinking about killing the vampire. Yeah, Dragon King of Arms. It's interesting because right before that, what you just read, there is this idea where he relates how he feels to Old Stoneface. Like, 
what he had felt that frosty morning when he picked up the axe that had no legal blessing because the king wouldn't recognize a court even if a jury could be found. That frosty morning when he prepared to sever what people thought was a link between men and deity. So like, yeah, like this idea of like he has reached the edge of what is right and what is lawful. And like, how do you how do you navigate that but still remain a watchman? Right. But it's but the point is, is that he. He doesn't know and he doesn't have to know because Vetinari, of course, interrupts and sort of saves the day here. But there is that moment where he has to try to figure that out. But yeah, speaking of time shenanigans, that is also an interesting part of this book because you do get the first the first reference to something that'll come up many times later, the trousers of I think time. I've had a reference to the trousers which is of the time idea, before. I thought this was the first one, but I could be wrong. I feel like you've definitely said it like I feel like they've mentioned them briefly, but not in as like direct a reference as this, where it's like well, Vimes went down the other one, and having the disorganizer right. be like, well, you should have been in this one. That it came into such a, like a hair, hair's breath. Is that the phrase? I don't know. Yeah, it almost turned out completely differently. Because I agree with you, that scene where he's listening to the deaths of all of them, and it haunts him. Like for the rest of his book, this book, he's thinking about, like, I heard them die. Like, I, I, I heard them die. Yeah, like when Carrot is playing football, he's like, well, I heard you die, but you're here. I I do think that that's really harrowing. And I think it says a lot about the way that Vimes views the watch now, as opposed to the way he viewed it, you know, back in Guards Guards when it was just him and Nobby and Colin. And he would have died, too, of course. Yeah. And that's like the last one. And that's not even like that doesn't bother him at all. I feel like if he had died first i don't think it would have bothered him as much but the fact that like he couldn't do anything to protect the rest of the watch even if like mm-hmm. even if he's commander and captain is ostensibly the car or captain is ostensibly the carrot jesus christ the heat is getting to me <laughs> carrot is ostensibly the captain like he still in some ways defers to vimes and vimes I, like, you know, he can't really function without being a copper. You know, like, he could do nothing to save these people, so he had to watch them all die and know in the end that, like, he, did, he didn't come... He, like, he didn't really do anything worthwhile if he couldn't protect his compatriots. And then that's just making me think of, the like, how he talks about growing up in uh, in the shades. Where it's like, well, we didn't learn... Yeah, you have, like, the one thing he doesn't have is, like, an, like training in arms. But, like, it was kill or be killed where he grew up. And they wouldn't, you know, go out for a drink or whatever and laugh afterwards. You'd be severely harsh. And that's how he grew up. Like, that's not how enemies work, right? Like, there's no, like, pretending that everything's okay. Like, that's, he sees that as being, frankly, quite psychotic, right? Like, this idea that, like you could just like have tea and then go fight each other. Right. Like that's like such a huge disconnect for him. But I also think that this has to do with the fact that the watch, he never sees himself as like that important in the scheme of things. And we've seen this kind of behavior before, but the watch are all so loyal to him in a way that I don't think he completely understands or appreciates because when rust 
tries to appoint any of them as the head of the watch, they all quit. Like you see Carrot just be like, no, like I won't do it. And like, you know, Colin shocks himself by like telling him to shove it where the sun won't shine. You know, like there's did all I tell you these, where I like, shoved just... us? Did I tell did I yeah, tell you what yeah. I said to him? Yes, yeah, several times, Fred. <laughs> He's like, he can't get over it because he he was a military person and he had that ingrained in him. And to, to speak that way to a superior officer just goes against everything that Colin is, but he does it for Vimes. That to me was just such an emotional scene, right? Because they all believe in the watch at this point, especially Carrot, but they're not willing to take bad orders and they're not willing to be con- they're not willing to be commanded by anyone other than vimes there's an interesting parallel between the watch laying down their swords and badges and leonard of quirm who i'm really glad got like a starring role in a side plot of this yes like the fact that like nobby says to him or oh, you could use this corkscrew to sink ships and he's horrified that anyone would ever use like the thing he created as a weapon for war or a weapon to harm, like a thing to harm people. He's horrified. Yeah. It just never occurred to him. And Vetinari says that's why he keeps him locked up, right? Is because he doesn't see any difference between, you know, the flying machines and the war engines. Yeah. He just doesn't understand because he doesn't think people would actually do it. It, it was Leonard of Quirm who came up with the blueprint originally for the Ghana, right? Yes, Absolutely. The Ghana is gone. You know, like, no one has guns anymore, but they're treating bows and, like, high-powered crossbows in the same way that they would guns, especially, like, in relation to snipe in, in relation to snipers. And that's another thing which, like... The lone bowman. Yeah, lone bowman and Aussie in his room at the start, like, you know, like, taking out the bow is very, like, there's a lot you know, not to get into gun politics again, but, you know, like the the Texas Tower shootings and obviously the Uvalde massacre, the shooting of Pulse nightclub, not all of those were lone gunmen situation, but like, you know, it really, it really seems like the Texas Tower massacre. See, for me, I saw it more as the assassination of JFK. Yeah. Because we're always talking about, was there another gunman? And did the CIA actually set up, you know, the the assassination as well? Oh, and of yeah. course, Ozzy is, is very similar to Oswald, who is ostensibly the person who killed JFK. Yeah. And he's often referred to as a lone gunman. I think there's a lot to be said for gun politics and the way that, like, people people, like, view and nearly worship them that goes back to, like, men in arms in this. Mm-hmm. And then it just reminded me of like how many Stephen King stories I've read that end with like someone setting up a gun and or getting a gun and like perpetrating a mass shooting. Uh, there's like at least three that I can think of. Rage, obviously the most famous one, because he let it go out of print uh, for that reason. But then the ending of Apt Pupil, Todd takes a gun out on top of a highway and starts shooting, and then Kane rose up a short story from Skeleton Crew, which is directly, like, referencing the Texas Tower Massacre, which is what I, which was my first thought, and then when they started getting into, like, visiting dignitaries, I was like, oh, Franz Ferdinand JFK. 
I was also thinking about the fact that Stephen King has written a book about time travel to prevent the assassination of JFK 11-22-63. Also, every time I see the title of this book, I'm just reminded of, like, how stupid your American way of writing dates is. Like, that's that should be the month. <laughs> it should be day, month, year. I know. Stop this. <laughs> I'm always reminded that my birthday is 11-21, so... There you go. 11-21. Oh, my God. So the other things about Bimes in this book, before we move to the other characters that were interesting to me, I'm wondering what you think about them, is, first of all, his relationship with Sybil is sort of explored a little bit more in this book than it has been since Guards Guards, um, because Sybil has really just been kind of a, a background character for the most part in Men at Arms and in Feet of Clay. She's there, but she's not doing like a lot. In this book, she's still not doing a whole lot, but we do get to see a little bit more of their dynamic, especially the tension that sort of arises between how she understands him and she understands that he needs to be a copper and he needs the chase, but also her worry for him and the way that she thinks that he's working himself too hard. And the ways in which she wants him to be safe, but also is trying to balance that with her understanding of him. What did you think about the scenes between him and Sybil in this book? I thought they were really sweet. Because, like, at the start, obviously she gives out the fact that he's never there. But she knows that he will be there, at least in part, and, like, that it's important to him. And it goes back to... Fred's relationship with his wife you know where he's always leaving out the door as she's coming back in and they never really interact with one another but they're like in love and have a happy marriage and she always leaves out food for him because she knows that like being part of the watch is you know like is an important integral part of who he is and it kind of flips the trope of the policeman's wife on it like on its head because a lot of the time they're just put up with like they just have to put up with it and they have to like deal with the fact that their partner is never there but whereas like they are like at least in this they understand and they're like trying to accommodate that because a lot of like fiction of that where it's like cold hard-boiled detective you know is constantly out gets obsessed with the case is never home Wife is left all alone. Marriage dissolves. Detective slips into alcoholism. I'm glad that that's not a thing. This is like the reverse. Yeah, exactly. Because he's like slipping out of al alcoholism for his wife, sort of. Yeah, and like they mention it, they actually do mention it in this that he drinks fruit drinks instead of alcohol. Because I had, I had said before that there doesn't seem to be mention of like an alcohol substitute that he drinks. But now it's he has his cigars. And he goes to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings and he drinks, you know, alcohol uh, alternatives. And so, like, it's refreshing to see Vimes's rehab process, like, being dealt with and having, like, a supportive wife who understands that, like, he needs to be taken care of and he needs to, like, cut back and stop drinking, but also that he needs to be a copper. Mm -hmm. So I, I genuinely enjoyed it. Sybil is really sweet um, in this book. Right. Especially when she says she's going to Venonari with him. 
Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, she, he's like, you do know you can't just complain. And she's like, I can too. And I, you also get this feeling between her familiarity with Vetinari and also her familiarity with Rust, right? She refers to him as Ronnie. Oh, because they went out. Yeah. These are people that she's... Right. These are people that she knows and they've moved in the same circles long enough where she's not afraid of them, which I think is especially interesting when it comes to Vetinari because I feel like everyone is afraid of Vetinari except for apparently Sybil. Yeah. The whole, like, Vimes isn't so much afraid of Vetinari as, like, what Vetinari represents and what he can do. Like, especially when they're locked in mm. the, the jail and he realizes how Vetinari's mind works. Like, that frightens him. But, like, then in the second book, in the second watch book, when he realizes that Sybil is on a first name basis with the patrician, when we find out that his first name is Havelock, like, that scares him nearly as much as anything else. The fact that, like, he's married to someone who's lived in high society and, like, has spent her whole life rubbing shoulders with the patrician. Like, Nobby says, he would have gone spare if Nobby had actually become the Earl of Ankh-Morpork. Yeah, I think that's an interesting dynamic between the two of them, too, because Vimes is just, like, so dead set against becoming a duke. And Sybil's like, whatever you decide, I, you know, I support you. But he knows that, like, secretly she's like... Yeah, I'd love to be a duchess, right? Yeah. <laughs> I was almost concerned that she was going to become a mommy figure to to Vimes. But what I think saves her in this, too, is that you always get the sense in this book and in all the books, um, whether she's in them to a greater degree or not, that she has her own life, right? Like she has her own. She has the dragon sanctuary. She has like her society stuff like she's not just sitting around waiting for vimes to come back like she's always in the middle of something yeah she's not a penelope right she's not like just sitting at home worrying about him although she does worry about him this book really emphasizes the ways in which vimes does love her like you know we get these these moments where you know he's thinking about what a good influence she is on him and you know, the fact that he would do anything to protect her. And, you know, there's that moment where they, they almost have the night in and he's almost getting excited about it. Like, we'll bar the door and we'll build up the fire. And then, of course, something happens and he gets pulled away. But there is this idea that they do have a good relationship. It's just one that is tested by, you know, all of these other things that are going on. They're really um, compatible for one another. There's a line that I, I think is really sweet and indicative of that, where it's like, Sybil wasn't a great cook, but Vimes wasn't a great eater. Yes, I love that scene. Where he, he just likes his things to be greasy and like... He says he, he taps the bacon on the plate and it shatters nicely. <laughs> it's a really sweet moment. The other thing I wanted to talk about, because it so closely has to do with Vimes' storyline before we move on to the other characters is that this book also extends a lot of the conversations that started in Feet of Clay about racism on the disc. And it really brings it into this context of war and tries to talk about the effects of racism and like the violence that comes out of it. The books so far have really put a lot of emphasis on speciesism as opposed to racism, but this book really does dig into racism. Ahmed brings this up to Vimes when he's like, 
you know, you're almost a good person because your brain wouldn't let you straight away think that it was uh, a Clatchian who did this, that they, you know, could be evil and have this plot. But also you need to, like, accept the fact that maybe some of them are. Like, uh, but Vimes' brain rebels against that because then it becomes an us and them situation. But it treats the issue like like it is, you know, like a really volatile like difficult to put in a neat box situation like uh, it Gareth's son being like oh you know like being told oh we need to go back to Clatch and he's like well because they're Clatchian well, I've never seen Clatch I grew up in Ankh-Morpork I'm an Ankh-Morporkian I think the situation with Gareth's family is very interesting in this book because it's used to highlight especially the way that suddenly communities can turn on people who are considered like other or different but it's also used to make the connection between racial stereotypes and violence because you get the way that Vimes has to stop, you know, these acts of violence like the Molotov cocktail being thrown in their in their restaurant and the the riot that almost happens in front of their restaurant as well. Mm. And he connects it with those like little slurs that people use for for the Clatchians and he calls Colin out on it. He like gives him a chewing out for it. But he connects it specifically with that moment um where he says a pool of sizzling oil, the family huddling together, right? And he sees that as being connected to what Colin just said. And um, that's another that's another thing which is extremely prescient about the book. We've mentioned this before, like the treatment of Pacific Island nation people and uh, especially Chinese people in the wake of COVID that like rise right. in hatred and hate crimes against them. You know, like things like being blamed for COVID and stuff where it's like, you know, you could have someone living and working, you know, like of, of Chinese descent or whatever, like, you know, maybe had never been in China, but they'd lived in America their whole life. And then they'd still have a hate crime done against them because like, oh, they brought COVID over here. Like, no, they didn't. You just, like, get your head out of your arse. That's that's <laughs> that's my great stance against racism. Take your head out of your arse. I mean, I think Vimes would approve. But, like, it's interesting the ways in which Pratchett, and this, I'm glad you brought up interesting times, because it's interesting the way that Pratchett can be so prescient about racism and the way that stereotypes are connected with acts of violence in times, you know, intense times like a time of war in the watch books. But yet he writes books like Interesting Times that have like those stereotypes in them as well. And it's also it's weird because I'm pretty we have a reference to Interesting Times in this. They say that no one ever found Lord Hong's body. I think that's more of a reference of the to the takeaway place. This idea that he he built his takeaway place on an eldritch site and no one know what hap- knows what happened to him. Ah, oh, I thought it was an interesting times. Or I got the names confused. Mr. Hogg, not Lord Hogg. Ah. I found the takeaway place thing very funny the first time it came around, so it was nice to see it come back around here. Yeah, I'd like for there to be a book that's just to do with, I don't know, a takeaway or something. Yeah, takeaways have featured too heavily in books for them to not have something dedicated to them i feel like because like the first one we read was more <laughs> and like the curry house where death worked has become like a central place to like it, it it ends up in um soul music and the 
pass by it again, don't they, briefly in Hogfather? Yeah, she like knows where he goes for his take hurry takeaway once a month. So I'd like there for there to be a book about takeaways. I don't know what the plot would be, but I don't know the plot of any of the future Discworld books. So who knows? What did you think about Prince Kufra and Ahmed playing on racial stereotypes in order to make their plot work? Stereotypes do exist, and we have to like understand that they're formed from racial prejudice. But if you encounter someone who like fits a stereotype of that you have against a, a certain group or ethnicity or whatever, like that shouldn't justify your belief in them. Like, that is a thing that people, they see, like, one person who fits their stereotype, and they're like, well, it must be true, all insert minority here are insert stereotype. Because, like, I understand what Ahmed says. Like, I like I, I understand where he's coming from when he says, like, oh, you should always act a bit far and wherever you go because everyone thinks you're slightly dumb. I understand right. the mentality behind that. And like, especially if you're going somewhere, you know, like as a minority going somewhere where you might have a hate crime done against you, just pretending that you don't understand may save your life in a situation. I don't like, I don't know. Like, I can understand it, but the fact that it's used for like an assassination plot makes me feel slightly weird because like, is this book challenging stereotypes and telling you to confront them? while also slightly relying on them, but less so than in interesting times? Yeah. Well, I don't know, because Ahmed and Kufra both actually don't fall into those stereotypes. They're just playing on them. Because when we meet Ahmed later, he speaks more Porky and Perfectly. He spent several years at the Assassin's Guild learning his trade. He, you know, does, he, he like, you know, doesn't fit into the stereotypes that he was performing at the beginning of the novel. Like, the idea is that it's all a performance. And Kufra is the same way, right? Is that he, like, puts on this, like, very big stereotypical show and Vimes is like, this is a joke, right? And he's like, oh, you're actually much smarter than the rest of the politicians here because you understand what I'm doing. Yeah, that happens again then with the dregs where they offer him the... Right, with the sheep eyeball. Yeah, and he goes, like, you have to be having a laugh. And they go, "Mm, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. You're a lot, an awful lot smarter. Do you like? Do you know how many people have eaten that eyeball? Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there is this idea that like stereotypes also make us very stupid, right? Like it makes us not able to actually understand other people and leads us into situations that we could have just not been in had we like not believed those stereotypes. Yeah, it's like putting blinders on. Yeah, even like Ahmed says, I thought that the putting the sand in the floorboards was a bit much. Because, like, they have that moment where they need to confront that, where it's like, well, a Klatchian must have been in the room. Why? Oh, because there's sand here from his sandals. Like, it's coming from his shoes. And then they have to be like, sand still in his shoes. Like, now? This long after them coming from Klatch? Yeah, why? Yeah, why? And then they're like, well, it's to make us think that it's a Klatchian by, like, a more Porkian, but then, as it turns out, it's a Clatchian making them think it's a more Porkian making them think it's a Clatchian. Yeah, I just, I what this reminds me of is the way that minority populations will often perform certain stereotypes in order to, like, get out of, you know, to, to play the white person for a fool, right? Like, if the white person already is going to think this, why wouldn't I, like, perform this to 
yeah. to, you know, get someone over on them. It's like it's like the way that women will sometimes like overemphasize periods, like to be like, oh, it's my time of the month. And then like, you know, like there's a scene like uh, like that in Agent Carter where she's like, it's my time of the month. I want to go home. And the the guy who's in charge is like, oh, yeah, I don't want to hear about that. And so she uses it as a way to like go do her own mission, you know, and so on. So like there there are ways in which these stereotypes can be deployed against white people especially yeah i think that's a much more like informed and intelligible way of saying what i was trying to say where like you sometimes have to perform stereotypes as a minority but then like with the period thing then you end up with like hilarious moments where like men don't understand periods like oh the i can't remember what the astronaut's name is but they're like how many tampons and pads do you need for like a 10 day trip into space like a hundred right and they're just like yeah fine right, yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah you know what yeah <laughs> yeah and men don't want to talk about it either they're just like oh no that's gross yeah it's it's so weird like the attitude toward like specifically on periods but i think you can apply this logic to a lot of things with what like prejudice the, the dominant prejudice and the like the holders of like it, it's, a, it's the patriarchy basically the holders of power in a society what they deem as acceptable and what they don't where it's like you know people are fine with like go like bloodshed in context like war or whatever but the minute like blood comes out of a w- woman's body as part of her reproductive health they don't want to hear about it yeah and it like it, it really like feeds into the idea that women are like unclean and their bodies are monstrous and like all of these these types of of things and i shouldn't say women i should say anybody with a uterus but mm. for these people they most associate it with women yeah i people with the capacity for pregnancy i think was something was said in a like a senate debate or something recent or it was like in a hearing where someone referred to yeah. people with the capacity for pregnancy and the person was like, what the hell do you mean by that? Don't you mean women? And it's like, no, because first of all, not all women are capable of being pregnant. And second of all, trans men. Right. Yeah. And I don't want to erase trans men from this situation either, because a lot of trans men do have periods. Yeah. But like in the context of like women's bodies being monstrous, like it's often the period that it, that's associated with. And that's a whole other conversation on like female body horror. And actually, this is a good segue. Yeah. Into Angua. Yeah, into Angua, who we do get a little bit of a female body horror in this book. See, we thought you thought, dear listeners, that we were going off on a on a tangent, but actually, we were we were bringing it back around to Angua. We actually <laughs> um, write out a script for the episodes beforehand, and we we're just reading it out loud. <laughs> so that means that Tessa knows all the times that I'm going to bring up Ooh, I look just like Buddy Holly. You just got Weezered. <laughs> All of that was all of that was a setup to a Weezer joke. <laughs> Let's talk about Angua and Carrot because I think that they're both of them and their relationship are a big part of this book as well as the stuff with Fimes. What did you think about Angua's storyline in this? I mean, I didn't enjoy it as much as I enjoyed storylines with Angua in previous books. I was like. Uh, like I, I, I enjoyed the characterization and the character development that Angua had in this book, but like the storyline itself was just kind of like it fell a bit flat for me. I don't know. Just like when she got on that ship and then 
got like put the silver collar on her. I was just like, well, I'm a bit bored now with this storyline. Like I want, I don't like seeing Angua trapped and in pain. So I was like, just no. Yeah, it's interesting though that she gets kidnapped and Carrot doesn't panic. Like that's something that both Vimes and Angua kind of point out is that he cares about her, but the way he cares about her is to like logically think through what the best thing to do for her is instead of just like losing his mind. Uh, and like they say something along the lines of like the, he just unless he's told otherwise, he kind of assumes things that are the way they are or the way that they have been. Right. And like this gets back into like in previous books where she thinks she's going to have to leave Carrot because he's too, he's too like simple a man, like too moralistically simple and too trusting and too good for her. Where she says, like, oh, would you ever think about moving out of Ankh-Morpork? And he's like, no, never. Like, you know, I need to do my job. And she's just like, yeah, okay. Like, her internal monologue is like, yeah, kind of expected that. Yeah, like, he he would never imagine being anywhere else than Ankh-Morpork. Which is really interesting because he's not a native of Ankh-Morpork. No. But he does seem to have adopted Vimes's attitude towards the city. Yeah. Uh, but also, he's really good at like assimilating himself and like learning and empathizing with people of other cultures where he's like you know he's able to like dress in traditional clatching clothes like in the the proper and acceptable way he like learns clatching really quickly and vimes is like he was raised in a dwarf mine you know how it took him only a month to make my city his and he speaks Clatchian with Gorif, right? Like he he like learn he's like, Oh, it's just you learn when you're picking up stuff and it's like, no, you don't learn languages just by picking up stuff from a takeaway place, right? Like that means you've actually sat down and talked to people. And I think but I think for Carrot, something like that would be of no consequence, where it would it would just like seem to him like the right thing to do would be to learn someone's native language to, you know, make it easier for them to converse with you instead of having them try and stumble through um, more Porkian. Even if it is an international language of trade, that was an interesting detail. Like, it's a language that's entirely associated with money, like, throughout. For the carrot thing, there's this really interesting scene, and it says a lot, I think, about carrot, but also about Angua, where... They're in Clatch, and Angua and Vimes are watching Carrot talk to the dregs and to the, the Clatchians. And and she asks Vimes, this is a little bit of a longer pas- passage, but she asks Vimes, why do people follow him? Well, you're his girlfriend. You ought. That's different. I love him because he's kind without thinking about it. He doesn't watch his own thoughts like other people do. When he does good things, it's because he's decided to do them, not because he's trying to measure up to something. He's so simple. Anyway, I'm a wolf living with people, and there's a name for wolves that live with people. If he whistled, I'd come running. Vimes tried not to show his embarrassment. Angua smiled. Don't worry, Mr. Vimes. You said it yourself. Sooner or later, we're all somebody's dog. It's like hypnotism, said Vimes hurriedly. People follow him to see what's going to happen next. They tell themselves that they're going to go along with it for a little while and can stop anytime they want to, but they never do. It's damn magic. No. Have you ever really watched him? I bet you he found out everything about Jabbar by the time he'd talked to him for 10 minutes. 
I bet he knows the name of every camel, and he'll remember it all. People don't take that much interest in other people, usually. Her fingers idly traced a pattern in the sand. So he makes you feel important. Politicians do that, Vimes began. Not the way he does, believe me. I expect Lord Vetinari remembers facts about people. Oh, you better believe that. But Carrot takes an interest. He doesn't even think about it. He makes space in his head for people. He takes an interest, and so people think they're interesting. They feel better when he's around. Mm. I think that's really a good view into their relationship. This is the first time that she said that she loves him. We, we haven't actually seen that in the other books, right? But she also says, like, really, his charisma comes from his ability to empathize, his ability to take an interest. Because she also says that, like, like relationships weren't really a thing she considered before because, like, the fact that she turns into a wolf is usually a deal-breaker for most partners. And for Carrot, this, like, doesn't really occur to him as a thing that should bother him. That's just what Angua does. Yeah, and Vimes asks him about it, and he's just like, oh, yeah, she has her own flap on the door, she buys her own dog biscuits, I don't really get involved. Like, it's just a thing. Right. It, it is almost if you want to take the werewolf part as like a metaphor for periods, because it happens once a month, you could say that, like, he's like the one dude who doesn't care, like who's just like, oh, yeah, you have a period once a month. You want to talk about it? The one good man. Although also that confirms that they live together, which wasn't true when we last saw it, when we last had this conversation in Feet of Clay. We, you kind of have to get that through, like, just picking up clues here and there, but I do think that that's interesting. Carrot, as a character, also, I think, has an interesting arc, not just because he's Carrot and he's doing things like starting Boy Scout troops, you know, between the two rival children's gangs in Ankh-Morpork, or, you know, because he organizes a football match between the Clatchian army and the Morporkian army, but also, he, his main conflict in this seems to be that he's really struggling with being Vimes' second-in-command. And that doesn't mean that he resents Vimes or anything. He wants to be Vimes' second-in-command. But he's struggling with the idea that, like, he keeps trying to make things easier for Vimes. And Vimes, like, refuses to allow him to make things easier. I think part of that is that Vimes would... F- like, Vimes, I think, intrinsically feels that if someone makes something easy for him, then he hasn't earned it, or that it's not worth it, or that it's, like, a trick, or it's going to let someone down. One of those type situations. You know, like, that he has to go through the hardest way possible, and then it will be done, and it will have helped out so many people. But, like, Vimes isn't even aware of all the people that have been drafted into the watch. Like, I mean, Red Shoe is now a part of the watch, and then Vimes or uh, Red Shoe. Yeah, Red Shoe is back. But like Carrot says to him, you signed the paperwork or like, you know, you put money into this fund and Vimes isn't aware of it. That he just saw something being passed around and he put money into it. Or you know, like he lets all the paperwork pile up until someone starts shouting at him and then he has someone to help him. I wonder if Vimes has ADHD. I definitely feel like, I definitely get the feeling that Vimes has at least executive dysfunction. But yeah, I do wonder about Vimes and executive dysfunction because he does, you know, do the thing. And I I have ADHD. And so I understand the urge to just let things pile up because you just don't want to deal with them. Don't you love when you say I have so many things to do and then you sit down and you do none of them? 
And you do none of them. You just watch Grey's Anatomy because everything just seems too hard. Yeah. It's it's interesting to think about Vimes that way, but also I think it has to do with the fact that like Vimes really cares about the tactile process of police work. Like he is never happier than when he's on a chase, right? Which really reflects that veterinarian's terrier type of mentality as well. He doesn't really care about the paperwork aspect of it, and Carrot does. And so I think that that's part of the conflict here is that Carrot has like a different management style. And so Carrot is doing what he thinks will make Vimes happy, but it's not the thing that actually makes Vimes happy. It's like a very small conflict in this, and it, it seems to be resolved okay. It's just like, it's interesting to see these two characters that work so well together because they represent very different ways of viewing the world and they've rubbed off on each other and they've like made each other better in so many ways. And Carrot definitely looks up to Vimes quite a bit. And Vimes has started to like take on some of Carrot's attributes as well. But it's interesting to see that and to know that Carrot has this huge power of empathy. And yet he still doesn't quite understand how Vimes works. Like Vimes is still somewhat of a mystery to him. Yeah. I like that they're not static objects. And I like that like they're not able to map themselves on to one another one on one because that's not how like knowing someone works, even though they're like change each other greatly you know it's just like they work in a certain way and then they have to like figure out how to bridge what's left of the gap like they've gotten most of the way across but then you've got that little bit where they have to like jump off the bridge to the other side they have to like think about each other and that trend of carrot being like well mr vime says and vime saying well carrot says that continues in this book we saw in feet of clay quite a bit where they're thinking about well this is how the other person would view this you know it says that um vimes put words in carrot's head and vimes brings up the thing from men at arms where he says carrot really is someone who believes that personal isn't the same as important like he's like he really believes that yeah and i feel like that's that's like something really rare, especially in Ankh-Morpork. So many people are self-serving uh, or like Lord Rust will sit down and be like, well, we're going to go to war and all of these people were going to die. But like he thinks that it's the right thing that they should do. Two of the like most self-centered things you can do is make the decision that your country should go to war and name your child after you. It's a horrible act of narcissism. Yes, absolutely. 100% agree. All right, let, let, let's talk about some of the other characters. What did you think about the veterinary Leonard of Quirm, Colin and Nobby escapades? I thought that was so fun. That was like, it was like Thelma and Louise. Or what I presume Thelma and Louise is, because <laughs> I haven't seen the film. Except they don't drive you the car. You haven't ca- seen the film? No. You should see it. Maybe I'll watch it soon. Although they don't drive the boat over a cliff at the end. Um, they drive it under an island. I feel like it's such a wacky hijinks and I don't... But I don't know how I feel about Nobby dressing up as Betty. Cross-dressing. Yeah. It, it feels strange, especially in a book where it goes to... It goes to, like, great pains, especially after Feet of Clay, to refer to cherry as cherry um and like with female pronouns and like the cherry is a she her identifying woman right 
and then to have the Nabi cross-dressing plotline feels really strange. And I don't know whether that's because he's set up to be so, like, vulgar and bawdy and lewd, or what, that it, like, that that plotline, like, kind of doesn't mesh with it. Because, like, when men dress as women in Shakespeare plays, it's entirely different. Because they're like, well, this is just a woman, or vice versa. Uh, like in Merchant of Venice, you're, where it's like, well, you've just assumed the role, but then it just feels like Nobby's playing a caricature. I suppose all of them are, really. Like, Colin, you know, is a clown, and then they well, he has to, like, play up being an idiot and not, like, he doesn't know Clatchian, but then he's like, well, I've got to just play this up so I make them think that I'm pretending not to know Clatchian. Right, and he, like, tries to perform the stereotypes, and the Clatchians are like, what is he doing? Like, he's clearly more Porkian. Yeah, like, where he shows up and he just says a bunch of stereotypes, like, in one paragraph. Like, like that's the same way that I think, like, in a non-racist way, people approach Australians. You know, where they're like, crikey, right. g'day, Sheila, throw another shrimp on the Barbie. Like, where they just list off, like, all of these stereotypes in one paragraph. And then they're like, yeah, that's you. I've drawn a neat little box and you are inside of it now. Right. I love the scene where he says something about camels and the in Clatchy and they're like, why would I want a camel? I'm a plumber. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, why would I why would I want to be on a camel? Yeah. Do you know how difficult it is to get a camel downstairs? <laughs> yeah. I don't know how I feel about the knobby thing, because I remembered it before reading this and I was like really braced for it to be very offensive. But it wasn't as fen- offensive as I thought it was going to be. Like, you're right that they are playing it up a little bit. But also, there are men who cross-dress. So, it didn't feel as bad as it could have been. Especially when they call out, like, the whole, like, there's a narrative, you know, like, there's a narrative exigency where when a man cross-dresses that usually other men suddenly find him attractive. And that didn't happen because it's knobby. Yeah, like, but it like, like right there. It's the only, like that's the only reference I've seen to like a chaser. You know, right? Yeah, I was like, oh well, that's a chaser. But then also like this book was written in the nineties, where a lot of like the terminology the trans community has wasn't really like widespread and well known. Right, but like there is like that narrative of like man cross dresses suddenly becomes very attractive yeah. to other men who think that he's a woman and then like there's this like homophobic kind of storyline where like he's trying not to be like pursued by this person and and this book references it like very tongue-in-cheek but doesn't actually do it and so like it it worked pretty well on that front and i liked also the way that nobby talks to the other women because i feel like there is like even though it's played as a joke like oh he's finally getting attention from women but it's because they think that he's safe because he's another woman um which in and of itself is indicative of another social problem but like yeah the idea that like he is able to be himself around them because he's not constrained by like performing his own gender in the way that he is in Ankh-Morpork. I found that actually kind of interesting. Yeah, like you said, it doesn't really feel as offensive as it could be, but it does feel weird. And I'm wondering whether some It of, does. Yeah. 
I'm wondering whether some of that is that he's like he's cross-dressing as a, a Clatchian woman when like when he's um, more yeah. Porkian that he ha- like that he's putting on like a cultural like that he's like that he's essentially like it's coming back to that whole ar- like argument that needs to happen every Halloween where you, where people have to say that like y- you know my culture is not your Halloween costume right you know where people will just dress up as uh, indigenous tribes or Native Americans and they're like no why are you, like why are you selling this why are you profiting off of my culture even like Hawaiian dress like stop and I think maybe that's where like you say I do agree that it's interesting to see that like when he doesn't have to perform his gender and have the like associations that people have with Nabi you know that he's like a strange sort of like subhuman like what is that they they, they talk about like they presume he has body part like they presume he has body parts because there are other body parts which are presumably connected to his torso I was like <laughs> I was like, what exactly is wrong with Nobby? Yeah, they're so horrified at the Angua and Vimes especially are so horrified by the idea of Nobby dating, which made me kind of sad because I was like, oh, Nobby deserves somebody. They're also horrified by the thought of him getting his kit off. Like, we're, they're like, you didn't. And then he's like, no, I said I was going to. And then he screamed and I was like, and then he's like, and I was like, yeah, and I'm pretty sure I could like sort the whole army out. We did find out something very important about Nobby, though, in this book. We found out that his first name is Cecil. That's what the C stands for. Hmm. C-S-T-J. So we know that like the C stands for Cecil. We don't know what the W stands for. And the S-T is St. Saint- John. So we're like slowly finding out what all those initials mean. <laughs> One of these days. One of these days we will know all. A couple of other things I wanted to touch on. The first one is Tacticus. I told you that he was going to be important in a book. And this one he finally is. The librarian gives Vimes a work that was written by Tacticus on, on strategy. Tacticus in this case kind of falls into like an Alexander the Great, like genius, Napoleon, genius tactician type of, of stereotype. First of all, I want the librarian to match me with a book. It says that he matches the book with the person. And like, I want to know what book the librarian would match with me. Secondly, like the Tacticus quotes, I thought were hilarious. Like the way in which his strategy is basically to go against conventional warfare to be like no like this is how you actually do a battle like if you're outnumbered don't have a battle (laughs) like there's just so many things about it in which like genius military tacticians often understand war the way that it's actually fought and don't have this idealized version of war as like a game because that's really what rust and the others treat it as like it's a game yeah, I just thought that that was that was really fascinating, and I enjoyed all of those those things. Like, uh, always fight someone who's willing to die for their country. That way, you and him are in agreement. All right, there are a lot of cameos in this book. Uh, we've already mentioned Red Shoe, who 
becomes a watchman. He's the first zombie watchman, which kind of goes back not only to Reaper Man when he's first introduced, because he is an advocate for dead rights or the undead rights. And he comes into the watch to complain about them not having enough zombies. And so they recruit him into the watch. And it also goes back to Feet of Clay when Vimes was like, yeah, I want to hire zombies because if this guy hates zombies, it must mean that they're all right. Because you remember his class realization in Feet of Clay? Yeah. So I, that, that feels like an extension of both of those storylines. And I also love the stuff about Red Shoe, how like parts of him keep falling off and that scares the enemy. I really like that. No, I, I like the scene where he's, like the Clatchian forces accidentally decapitate him and they're yeah. like, oh, it's fine. It's fine. He helped him sew the head back on with thread. Although if we try and escape, then they'll chop off all of our feet. And Reg says he doesn't have enough thread for all of us. There are several scenes with Ridcoli, uh, specifically because the procession that gets interrupted, the convivium, as it's called, uh, which I think is a really... I wish that there was more about that because the idea of like this is supposed to be a symbol of like the wizards, the uni the unity between the university and Ankh-Morpork. And it's really just a, like the wizards being like, we used to control Ankh-Morpork and you know, isn't it great that we don't anymore? I thought that was all fascinating, but we do get to see Red Coley a little bit. Yeah. Cause like one of the main reasons they elected Red Coley, who was out doing his like best, he was out living his best Radagast the Brown lifestyle was because like, his mind was so simple that like it wouldn't happen again. Obviously like the, the difference is with Rid Cully, it's just like a one track mind that's difficult to deviate from, but like he was chosen as an implicit countermeasure to things happening in sorcery. But like, I think it's the most Ankh more porkian thing to do to have a procession that celebrates that the, like, you know, the former occupation. Cause like America has Independence Day and France has like Bastille Day and everyone has these national days of liberation where they became like their countries in their own right. Whereas the Convivium is like, the wizards are just like, oh yeah, we used to rule you and we're still here. Ha ha ha. But of course the wizards at this point have sort of evolved into the, the group that we're most familiar with, with Rid Coley and the Dean and the Senior Wrangler and the Bursar. By the way, all the stuff about the bursar locking himself into a safe and we're not sure how he even gets the key inside, that was all great. But like the idea that these people are, they're not harmless, but they are more harmless than perhaps the wizards that we saw at the beginning of the Discworld series that were still very ambitious and still trying to kill each other and still like, you know, it seems like sorcery was the end of that kind of wizard. Right. Like once they realized how horrific they could be and they put Rid Coley in charge, there was a paradigm shift in what the wizards could or wanted to be. Yeah. And like that transition between this is like I've just realized this now that transition between the old Unseen University and the new one is kind of like the rehabilitation of the watch where like Vimes and Carrot have to come to terms with like what they need to do and whether they need to cross the line to do their good duty. Whereas Rincewind just completely separates himself from the, like the events of sorcery and what the other wizards are doing by saying he's not the killing kind of wizard. And that's what this new unseen university is kind of like representative of. 
Like it just, it really brought it into perspective for me. Like that this is a very different relationship that Ankh Morpork has with the wizards than they did at the beginning in Color of Magic and in Light Fantastic. We also get uh, one reference to Bloody Stupid Johnson. (laughs) Where Sybil was talking about how her father scared him off before he could do any real damage to their house. We also get a scene with Mrs. Cake where Nobby goes to her to have his 10 penny fortune read. And it's so confusing to her that she goes in for the $10 version for herself just to appease her curiosity. Did you notice that Al Jibla? I did actually. But I like the fact that they see him and they're like, oh, I fancy your name must be something like Al Jibla. And he's like, ah, yes, it is. You must have heard of me. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's funny that this joke has gone meta now. Like characters realize that there's always going to be like a Dibbler somewhere. But it's really weird the way that they talk about uh, the way that Ahmed talks about Dibbler, where it's like, oh, is he still selling his sausages in a bun? you know oh same old dibbler it makes it seem like he's timeless like obviously ahmed isn't that much different in age from like vimes and carrot and the rest of the watch but it makes it sound like dibbler is you know like is timeless and now i'm kind of buying into this theory like this theory i've just thought up of that like dibbler is some sort of immortal deity and that's how he chooses to spend his immortal existence you know like he just sells sausages in a bun on the street corners. He's a con man for fun. He kind of reminds me, now that you've brought that idea up, it's kind of like Mad Hetty from Sandman, where like she's just this character that exists in the background, and she's immortal because we see her like in all these different places and times, but she's like not like she's just kind of there and she just chooses to be like this homeless woman that gives information occasionally and interacts with these other characters. Yeah, and it's kind of like in like in the salmon it's a nice contrast to Hob Gadling, who's like become immortal by choice, but like his whole thing is like, I'm gonna go do things and every hundred years we'll meet back up and like discuss them. Uh whereas you know, in this case it's like, Oh, I'm just like, yeah, that's fine, but like if you want me, I'm just gonna be in the background doing my own thing. But it's in uh volume three of Salmon Dream Country. Yeah, Dream Country. Where, like, you know, we see how the ancient Egyptians viewed Morpheus and how cats viewed Morpheus, like, in different ways. And so I feel like if we're going further with this theory, it would explain why there's, like, you know, Dibla in Small Gods and why there's Algibla in this book. That they're all just, like, how different cultures view and worship the same kind of, like, deity. Like, he's his own little small god. That would be interesting. But yeah, like, this idea that, like, humanity creates a space for, like, a a salesman, right? Like, they believe that it, that there's always someone like that, and so it creates, like, this person. Although it uh, does beg the question about how he has a nephew. Like, I mean, demigods are a thing, so I feel like if gods can have children, they can also have nephews, right? Yeah, I mean, that makes sense to me. Totally makes sense to me. There is a brief reference to Vimes calls the Watch, the new militia that he's formed of the Watch, the Monstrous Regiment, which is the name of a Terry Pratchett book that we haven't read yet. So that'll be really interesting to talk about.
We also get some other references to different things of literature, as usual. The ones that stood out to me, different pop culture references, I should say. Um, the ones that stood out to me were Sweeney Todd. There was a reference to there was a, a barber who was accidentally slitting people's throats that they had to uh, arrest. There's a uh, reference to A Thousand and One Nights um, when Nobby's talking to the women and they're like, oh, how do you know this many like dirty stories? And he's like, I have a thousand and one of them. So you get like those types of references in there as well. We also get a reference to uh, a couple of characters. This is classic Pratchett introducing characters that will come up again later. The Agony Ants, who are the enforcers of the seamstress guild, Dottie and Sadie, who basically make sure that nobody mistreats any of the seamstresses. They sounded slightly terrifying, and I'm not entirely sure why. Like, as enforcers. I mean, the name Agony Ants is pretty Yeah, it's pretty indicative. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, there was a reference to... Veterinary makes it to, to what happened in Jelly Baby. And they're, like, on a camel. Yeah. And it's like, is he referring to Tracy and Tepich's, um like, flight from the country on You Stubborn Bastard? Is that the name of the camel? Yes. Yeah. Because, like, they're on it, and so it seems to be referenced that, but, like, how does Veterinary know? And it's, I, I, like, I've just come back once again to the question of when exactly does pyramids take place? It's a great question. I mean, I think that part of the reference is to the fact that Tepich was trained in the Assassin's Guild. And so he brings up the fact that, like, there are a lot of people from these other countries that are trained in Ankh-Morpork or who are educated in Ankh-Morpork. And so, like, yeah, it's an interesting connection to make. All right, there are two death sightings in this book. The first one is when death comes for snowy slopes who is the second gunman or the second bowman in the assassination attempt. So he, he tells him that his dandruff problems are solved. He's the second Andy. The, the second death sighting is the one where at the end of the book, death comes across the disorganizer and has a conversation with the disorganizer, decides he doesn't need it and throws it into the ocean. I enjoyed that one because he's like, oh, I, have a, I have a lot of contacts. Ah, yes, yeah, so we can put them in and... No, once I've contacted them, they will stay contacted. <laughs> yeah, and he keeps, he has so many appointments, but he knows when all of them are, so he doesn't need reminding. That's interesting that, like, the disorganizer, like, the imp in it is recognized as living. Like, the whole entity is. But then its version of the afterlife is to just be thrown in the ocean. It's interesting. The first footnote, this actually, this book took a while to get to the first footnote. Like, I was like, usually yeah. they come on the first couple pages, and it wasn't until page 41 of my book where you get the first footnote, which is, Carrot started to clap. It wasn't the clap used by midlings to encourage underlings to applaud overlings. Footnote, the palms are held at right angles to one another and flap together rather than clapped, while the flapper stares intently at the audience as if to say, we're going to have some applause here or else the whole school is in detention. That is a very accurate description of that kind of clap. I have seen people do that clap. It's real. No, I can definitely, like, 
I could definitely imagine that, but now I'm just imagining the clapping that happens, like, at someone's birthday when it's in, like, a restaurant or whatever. Like, like a McDonald's birthday party, and they bring out the cake, and everyone's like... <laughs> like, everyone's just really, like, come on, you need to clap, come on, everyone, ah! Everyone, oversell it, yeah. What was your favorite footnote? I'm kind of torn between two. Then he barricaded the windows as best he could and went out, locking the door behind him. A discreetly obvious brass thieves' guild plaque over the door told the world that Mr. Gareth had conscientiously paid his annual fee. Footnote. And would not, therefore, be officially burgled. Ankhmore Pork had a very direct approach to the idea of insurance. When the middleman was cut out, that wasn't a figure of speech. And then... Ramkin regiments... I was looking for the start of the sentence there. Ramkin regiments had fought the city's enemies all over the Stowe Plains and had inflicted heroic casualties quite often on people in the opposing armies. Footnote. It is a long-cherished tradition among a certain type of military thinker that huge casualties are the main thing. If they are on the other side, then this is a valuable bonus. <laughs> yeah, that's more wonderful satire of war culture, which I think is excellent. Yeah, it's like they're just out for blood. And if it's enemy blood, oh, well, that's even better. That's even better. I mean, and that feeds into like the heroic stories about people like dying in conflict. Like, oh, well, they died so bravely. And it's like, yeah, but what should we celebrate that? <laughs> should we actually celebrate that? Yeah, when you like get down to the nitty gritty of this, you're like, Ugh. When you actually think about what you're celebrating here. So my favorite footnote was when Vetinari was juggling, which is a scene that I really enjoy. But he says, kind sirs, that would be too simple, said Lord Vetinari. Footnote. Jugglers will tell you that juggling with items that are identical is always easier than a mixture of all shapes and sizes. This is the case even with chainsaws, although, of course, when the juggler misses the first chainsaw, it is only the start of his problem. Some more will be along shortly. <laughs> that was just kind of wonderful, not only because it explained what was going on, if you're not familiar with juggling, but it also brought us into that narrative voice again, where the narrator knows things about the real world that people on the disc wouldn't possibly know, like the existence of chainsaws, which chainsaws obviously don't exist on the disc world. And so, like, it's, I, I just thought that was funny, and it was very clever. Hmm. I think Chainsaw's a fun name. Like, imagine naming your kid Chainsaw. Chainsaw. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what was something that made you laugh? The description of Nobby in the army, where he was just, like, running around the battlefield, putting on different uniforms, depending on how the tide was turning. And then Colin is like, oh yeah, they used to say that the generals could know who was losing or winning depending on what uniform Nobby was wearing. <laughs> yes, Nobby has a very specific history as a veteran. And it, it, like this falls into stuff we've known before about Nobby, where it, it talks about how he would loot the battlefield and, you know, all of those things. Because it's like Fred is a military man and he's like, he spent time in like loads of different regiments. And then Nobby's like, well, I, ha I have two. And then he's like, yeah, but not during the same. You're not meant to do it during the same battle. Oh, Nobby. The thing that made me laugh was during the conflict on Leshp, uh, when Jackson is solid, Jackson is talking to his son, Les. And he says the phrase, but you know what they say, lad, give a man a fire and he's warm for a day, but set fire to him and he's warm for the rest of his life. That made me laugh because it's a very clever subversion of the teach a man to 
you know, teach a man to fish and he'll, you know, be full for the rest of his life. But I, I just thought it was so unexpected to say set a man on fire instead of teach a man to make a fire. It's just like yeah. one of those like subversions that you're not expecting. Here's a, here's a fun thing to make you think. You're either on fire or you're not. Yeah, that's true. There's no like oh, being a little bit on fire. Just like everything is either a sandwich or not a sandwich. Well, I feel like that one people would argue with you more because is a hot dog a sandwich is a very debated point of thought amongst a lot of people in the U.S. A hot dog is not a sandwich. A hot dog is a hot dog. And it's ludicrous to think otherwise. <laughs> What's something that made you think? Uh, I've mentioned this one before, but it's the quote about Vimes realizing that maybe he has to step outside the law to do the thing which is actually right. You know, and how that plays into the quote you read out about the Stoneface Jackson and how he took up an axe because a jury wouldn't have convicted uh, the last king. That's a really good section. The one that made me think was a scene near the very beginning, and this fits really well into some of the conversations we've already had. But we mentioned the scene where Vimes was talking about how there's Clatchians born in Ankhmore Pork. He says, you saw some lad with a face that got camels written all over it. When he opened his mouth, it turned out that he had an Ankian accent so thick he could float rocks. Oh, there's all the jokes about for funny food and foreigners, but surely not very funny jokes come to think of it. When you hear the bang, there's no time to wonder how long the little fuse has been fizzing. And I, I thought that that was a really good description of like how like, oh, those jokes aren't actually very funny. And they do actually eventually lead to these types of violence. Like the idea of when you hear the bang, there's no time to wonder how long the little fuse had been fizzing. Because for so long, a lot of people are like, oh, it's just a joke or it's funny. It's not really serious. It doesn't lead to anything. And then suddenly you're in the middle of a war. Yeah. And how, yeah. How these little like microaggressions and like acceptances of like more than microaggressions, you know, like the casual way people use slurs about certain ethnic groups or, you know, the use of stereotypes like will lead to like once they become sort of accepted in society's culture, then it's, you know, I, I need to put massive, like, mile-long air quotes around this, okay, to, like, commit a hate crime against them, you know, where it's like, well, right. the whole culture is against them, and so then they don't see what's wrong with what they're doing, because bit by bit, you've set that fuse. Right, you've eroded those normal boundaries that would stop you from doing something so heinous by making it more and more acceptable to treat people in a certain way. Have I ever brought it up with you? I've definitely brought it up with like someone and it was like in relation to the running man. Are you aware of like the running man, the film and the book? I'm familiar with it. Yes. Yeah. And so there was like a, a podcast I was listening to was discussing this and it was like, like if this were a real thing, would you watch it? You know, this thing where they sent like, you know, criminals out and they had to do these things and it would like get them money or time off their sentence or whatever. And it's like, they were talking to Kumail Nanjiani, um, uh, is the King cast. And he was like, no, I wouldn't. And then they were like, and then he said, but it, it, it would be interesting to see like, what if they said, Oh, like if these were the worst of the worst, like the absolute worst criminals ever, like they had done unforgivable things. And they sent them out into like a Hunger Games style situation where they all like fought to the death or whatever. 
and you could like sort of assuage your own guilt and your like you know your your conscience telling you that this is wrong or if you said like oh they wouldn't get seriously hurt like they might break a bone doing this challenge or whatever but they wouldn't die like how quickly that would slide into something where bloodshed against people would be an acceptable thing to watch on tv and i think it's the same principle except in this case it's always minorities it's never like right it's never white cishet men right exactly exactly all right so in our next episode wait you forgot there's one there's one reference to sort oh there is where was it i missed it they reference it's talking about all the different countries i'm trying to find it now hold on i can just i can go i have the digital version of it so i can search it up but there is a there is a sort reference i completely missed it apparently i was not a good reader this time you are a great reader i just i'm looking oh no hold on there's two yeah, they're talking about black their eyes. He leaned back. There's Chimeria and Conley and Ephivi and Sort and Muntab these days too and Omnia. Some of these are powerful nations, gentlemen. And then every child knows, do they not, the story of the mere 100 Ephibians who defeated the entire Sortian army. A total victory, eh? Eh? Yes, sir, said the adjutant glumly. Oh, okay. That's really interesting. Yeah. The Trojan War, probably, because that's like a big thing with the Phoebe and Sort. Yeah, although it feels like the Battle of Thermopylae, nearly, with like the hundred Phoebians. Right, yeah, absolutely. All right, well, I didn't know that, so obviously wasn't paying attention as well, so good catch, good catch. Next episode, Rincewind explores the mysterious continent of 4X, and we reach a Discworld milestone. Do we? Yeah, we do. I'm interested to know what you think about this this novel and where it fits in the Discworld. Where can people find you online and on their headphones, Nigel? You can find my shows, Hyperfixations and Archive of Myers, although Archive of Myers is not really a thing anymore, wherever you find your podcasts, like on Spotify or places. And you can find me mainly on Twitter, at Spicy Nigel, where... I've been continuing my countdown to Avatar 2. It's currently 154 days till Avatar 2 comes out. I was really shocked to learn last night, genuinely, that Yugoslavia was not a thing anymore. Just, it's just it's my usual mix of nonsense. Like, yeah, I'm handsome. Yeah, I have hands. <laughs> you can find me on Twitter, at Suelatessa, and on my other podcast, Monkey Off My Backlog. That's at Monkey Backlog. You can find this podcast on Twitter at Nanny's Book Club and on Instagram at Nanny Ogg's Book Club. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Follow us on Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Read us out, Nigel. There was a scream from the crowd. His head jerked round and he saw a stout woman sitting on the ground waving her arms. He stole my bag and he never showed me his Thieves Guild badge. The procession shunted to a halt as Vimes stared at the figure legging it across Sator Square. You stop right there, Sidney Pickens, he yelled and leapt forward. And, of course, very few people do know how tradition is supposed to go. There's a certain mysterious ridiculousness about it by its very nature. Once, there was a reason why you had to carry a posy of primroses on Soul Cake Tuesday. But now you did it because that's what was done. Besides, the intelligence of that creature known as a crowd is the square root of the number of people in it. 
Vimes was running. So the university choir hurried after him, and the people behind the choir saw the gap opening up and responded to the urge to fill it. And then everyone was just running because everyone else was running. There was occasional whimpers from, from those whose heart, lungs, or legs weren't up to this kind of thing, and a bellow from the Arch-Chancellor had tried to stand firm in the face of the frantic stampede and was now having his head repeatedly trodden into the cobbles. And apprentice thief Sidney Pickens ran because he had taken one look over his shoulder and seen the whole of Ankh-Morpork Pork Society bearing down on him. And that sort of thing has a terrible effect on a growing lad. And Vimes ran. He tore off his cloak and whirled away his plumed hat and he ran and ran. There would be trouble later on. People would ask questions. But that was later on. For now, gloriously uncomplicated and wonderfully clean, and hopefully with never an end, under a clear sky in a world untarnished. There was only the chase. The end.